0: Good evening from Rodney Trudgeon and welcome to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. My guest today, Percy Tucker, who was born in the small mining town of Benoni in 1928, so he's just had an important birthday, and devoted his life to nurturing and furthering the live arts and entertainment here in South Africa. And in so doing, as we know, he's forged mutually productive relationships with creative artists and managements across Europe, Britain and the United States. The breadth of Percy's interests ranging from his first love, the theatre, through classical music in all its forms to ballet, modern dance, popular music, variety, spectacle, saw him become an integral figure in the show business industry in this country as advisor, counsellor, mentor as well, organiser, impresario and innovator. Internationally, Percy is known above all for the founding of CompuTicket, the world's first fully operative computerised, centralised ticket booking system. Which he introduced to South Africa in 1971, and for that concept and its realization, Percy Tucker has been extensively honoured, as it changed forever the way tickets for entertainment were marketed worldwide. And Percy's right here in the studio with me this Sunday evening. Percy, welcome, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you for that lovely introduction. And you look sprightly on mm. your feet, and I keep seeing you at every single production. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but now, quite interestingly, when we were talking about this date, you. You said the 16th of August seems in your life to be an important date on Friday the 16th because that apparently was the 42nd birthday of
1: CompuTicket,
0: 42 years. In
1: 1954 on the 16th of August I started the first professional company a professional booking office in South Africa called Show Service which ran until 1971. What we did there, we most important office for creating theatre and booking seats in South Africa. But what happened is that over 17 years, the queues just grew and grew and grew. We moved from 100 Elof Street, where we were originally um, located, and then we went to 165 JP Street, which had lovely long queuing space and ran right around the block. And in 1951, if I go back a little bit, I was in a queue for three days and three nights at the... At the <laughs> Outside His Majesty's booking for operas, which starred Benjamin Gili and Tito Gobbi and a whole, uh, Luigi Infantino and a whole host of stars. And after three days and three nights, I was the third in the queue. My beloved friend Jaime Grow, who ran the wonderful shop recording, was number two. And I got on stage to buy the tickets. And the lady said, I'm sorry, Mr. Stodel's friends have reserved all the seven and sixpennies. Now, I had brought with me like 3,000. Uh, pounds uh, from uh, Benoni Musical Society and there I was standing so I, I did something which is so totally opposite to what I do. I got on the stage and said, Mr. Stoodle you are an idiot. How dare you treat the public this way? And I said one, I told the public, this is a sham. You're not going to get the tickets. I've had already paid two guineas and that means a lot of people are not going to come. Two guineas with 42 shillings. And I said, oh, one day I will open a booking office and show you how it should be run with integrity and with honesty. Where it came from, I have no idea, because all I did was go back to university to finish my BCom and CA degrees, and um, I carried on. And suddenly, t- uh, two years later, Leon Gluckman, who was doing Elizabeth Stedden's production of King Lear, asked me to be business manager. And I found... You couldn't buy tickets, you couldn't do publicity, you couldn't get posters, everything that a the theatre office needs. And so on the 16th of August 1954 I started show service and of course the big things we sold was 1956 was the was the Johannesburg festival, the biggest festival that's ever been heard, seen or heard in this country with the La Scala Opera, Marga Fontaine, orchestras, every soloist, Yehudi Menuhin, everyone came. It was, I remember it was a fantastic Fancy. when you read through the list of names it um, came to that festival in Johannesburg. Absolutely. And then in 1959 King Kong opened uh, Oh yes. and the queues went round and I used to go and say it's Tuesday afternoon, I worked out we can sell so many, serve so many people in such a short time will you please come back three days later at about past three and hopefully <laughs> we can serve you. And I thought this is crazy this is absolutely crazy and then in 1968, I heard about computerization beginning in the theater. So I went to Los Angeles, and, I mean, they were working on a telex machine. Can you imagine tickets being printed in a telex machine? So and slow. I said, why isn't it working? And I said, well, we when we put the machines into a, a shopping center, they say, what are you going to sell? We have nothing. And they go to the theater and say, where are you going to put them? And say, so we have shopping centers, but have nothing to sell. It was a chicken and egg circle. Nobody wanted to part halfway. I had all the tickets. And in 1970, on the 31st of December, I got a message that a firm called SIS was going to be closing down in London because the Reed Paper Corporation dis- decided they were not making a profit, and they had started designing a computerized system. So I flew to London that night on the 31st of December, and six weeks later 12 of the main programmers arrived and they sat with me for six months and on June the 11th, the star broke the story by Percy Banaszczyk. Space age scheme devised by Benoni Boy <laughs> launches world first and on 16th of August 1971, ticket opened and I bought the first ticket. I was so determined that ticket buying must be made easier, and we mustn't cause problems for the public who wanted a book. They must be given the opportunity of doing it at their leisure and with ease. Percy, and they
0: say, to use that dreadful cliché, which I'm going to use, the rest is history, and now, Mm -hmm. thanks to you, we have this incredible system worldwide. But there's a lot I want to talk to you about, so let's get down to some music briefly. And I know you've met so many people, and you've come in here with dozens of cds but we can only really take about six five or six but the first one is a historic one going right back to the 1920s or something with richard Talbot. 1939, 1939 land of smiles at the empire theater tell me about why you've chosen this just before because he's going to sing ness and dormer in german i see
1: well the first time i ever went to a theater was in 1936 at the age of seven to see gracie fields with whom i fell in love with <laughs> and became starstruck and stage struck ever since then I was taken to see John Payne at the orchestra of His Majesties. In 1939, I, did, I asked my parents to take me to see Land Smile Smiles, starting Richard Tauber. Now, war clouds were gathering everywhere. We had this Austrian tenor. He's coming in. Possibly he was the last one to come before war was declared. And because he was the first tenor I'd ever heard, I decided that's how I want to start the program.
2: Come on!
0: Voice from the past, Richard Tauber and Nesson Dorma from Turandot by Puccini. The first choice recorded in 1939 of my guest this evening, who's had such a colorful life, Percy Tucker of CompuTicket fame. And Percy, it's People of Notes on Fine Music Radio. Does that bring back lovely memories for you of that day in Johannesburg and at His Majesty's? I
1: just have the most incredible memory. I know I'm supposedly very old, <laughs> but I remember everything. I mean, when I sat down and wrote my book, Just the Ticket, yes. I never went to a library. I just had the lists of the shows, and I just sat down in one in 10 months and wrote a 600-page book. Of, yes, because it's so detailed. And and that's that's what it the only thing that caused me a problem was that nobody on a program puts the date and the year. Even to this day, I can't find data. And so I sat in the library in... Johannesburg underneath ground there and turned over each page and page looking for the opening nights and that I think is the strength of the book because it's done in chronological by year by year by year mm, it's a lovely read just the tickets mm. but you say it's out of print at the moment or something I yeah mean, really. we, we, the I phoned up Jonathan Ball's office the other day and they told me that the it was in an archive which got burnt down five years ago, oh my goodness. and if I want to reprint it, I've got to please ask anyone to know how to scan it or put <laughs> it into the internet, because somebody said I must get a typewriter, typist and type every page. Somebody else said I must scan every page, but when you take a book, your scanning is not. Easy with, the, with the due to the cover. That's right. Well, maybe
0: someone's listening, Percy. I hope so. To help you. You'll help me enormously. <laughs> but you said just now, Percy, about Gracie Fields. You said that was... Because my question was going to be, where did your love of theatre come from? You lived in Benoni, and it's, you know, so many jokes about Benoni, but look what Benoni's produced. Unbelievable. Percy Tucker, yeah, and Charlize Bobby Locke,
1: and, and Charlize Theron, and Princess Charlene and Monica, and Stephen uh, Kosser, <laughs> the head of investing. Where, um, what, where, did you,
0: where did this come from, this passion, this love?
1: Was it just Gracie I, I, Fields? In a, I have two brothers, one uh, passed away in Israel a couple of years ago, he was an engineer and my other brother is a pediatrician in London and Gracie Fields was the turning point in my life and um, I then, when, when I was age 10, um, the doorbell rang. We lived right across the road, the Benoni Town Hall which was built in 1937 and uh, the, the person on I answered the door, and there were two Afrikaans people there speaking to me in Afrikaans, but I had only gone to an English speaking school, so uh, I asked who they were. they said Matilda and Hill and Matilda and Henry Concombm um and they said i must introduce my they introduced me to Andre Huguenin and Paul de Cruzup, and they've come to borrow the furniture because the, all the Afrikaans companies used to come and borrow furniture from the houses <laughs> near the, the hall. They never traveled with furniture. And I thought, well, they're going to offer me complimentary tickets. I didn't know the play was in Afrikaans, but when my parents came home, they found me loading all the furniture from That's the cool. veranda and the lounge onto a pantechnicon of that their year vintage, and they thought I was beyond redemption. And then... The East Rand Theatre Club was working just across the road, and the East Rand Theatre Club was run by Ethel and in London, and they only used professional directors, and after school, in the 40s, I used to go across the road and help them clean the stage and be prompt, etc., and I worked myself up to stage manager, and I had an assistant stage manager called Barney Simon.
0: Good gracious. <laughs> there you go. That's a bit of
1: name topic. And I used to know all these people and work with them, and I, in fact I gave a lecture just a few weeks ago on the famous Leontine Sargon who did Matching in Uniform. But Leon Gluckman came out there and, and a few others, and then... Um, I worked as stage manager for the Eagles Two Heads with Toby Kushlik and Leon Gluckman, and there was one instance I was sitting in the in the prom corner um, with a fork eating a piece of cake, and I looked on the set and there was no revolver, and uh, Liz, Empress of was going to shoot <laughs> Leon, and the next thing is Toby. I said, "What are you doing?" She wants a fork, and she took the fork out of my hand. And she went to stand. <laughs> <the four. laughs> I thought, well, this is creative theater. But um, one, she did a production in 1946 of Love of the Dole in 1948, Guinea Pig. And we couldn't. Under, and in, in the audience of the Guinea Pig was Michael Balkin. So Michael Balkin, the famous, a uh, ranked producer of so many British films. And his grandson is Daniel Day-Lewis. And he was married, oh, I didn't know that. and Michael Booker was married to a, a lady from germiston Alice Letterman, and how Toby got a, a director of this to come to see a play, The Guinea Pig, and I was doing the lighting, and I know nothing about lighting. I told Toby, but when the actress came on the left-hand side, the light went on the right-hand side, the right-hand side, the left-hand side, and Toby came backstage, and she screamed at me with words that I never heard and will never repeat, and I said... She said, the only good thing you were doing is selling the tickets. And the seed was born. Oh, but remember, I came from a family who came from Lithuania. My parents had never been to a show until I started taking them. My grandfather, our mutual grandfather, Hazel Fellman, is also a grandchild. She's my first cousin. Yes,
0: so you're related because she was on People of Note yeah. a few weeks ago. And,
1: and where we came from, and this showbiz gene... My great-nieces just performed in Los Angeles at the age of 17 with a rock orchestra uh, and I mean I watched the gene flourishing all over the place and they had never been to a show in their lives they didn't know what a theatre was and my, my father never had an education uh, ever and it was just very sad that he he did not like um, me in being showbiz, especially when I had a career and and he had nothing and he was a businessman and the whole thing changed in nineteen sixty-eight, when Richard Tucker came to South Africa, and I brought him home for Sabbath dinner, and he did the whole Sabbath service in our house, and my father thought possibly there's something in the little boy's idea of being a running show service, and he changed my life. Uh, Richard I, Tucker did. Yeah, I must tell you one instance, one story, if you've got the time. Um, After the press interviews, uh, when Richard arrived at the Rand International Hotel, he said, Percy, we'll go out for dinner, I'll meet you in an hour. And I knocked on the door at the hotel room, I said, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong room. He said, Percy, don't you recognize me? I said, Richard, no shoes with high heels, no corset, no hair, no teeth.
0: (laughs) No, you, And that
1: was a little old man standing there. And he wasn't old. He died very young a couple of years later. And I, I'll never forget the expression on his face when he said he didn't realize I recognized him. And We had great fun. We actually went to Israel together. We went to Masada. We, he took me backstage to the Met to meet Joan Sutherland and all the great artists there. And that's when my father actually was killed by an accident, in an accident the day Ticket was announced. I don't know if you ever saw or heard of it. No, I didn't. Yeah.
0: I didn't know that at all. Just to explain on, a little bit about that.
1: On June the 11th, when Ticket was announced, he went to see Kiss Me Kate in the Benelli Town Hall, and they were walking across the road, and um, a car came with a drunken driver and knocked him down. Oh, no. On the uh, eve of it, his it, son's it, yeah, great success. Yeah. Good
0: grief, Percy. But let's cheer ourselves up yes, now and absolutely. listen to the voice of Richard Tucker.
2: The new is
0: tenors, Percy, those great tenors. Richard Tucker, certainly one of them there, the voice of Richard Tucker, who, as you heard, became a friend of my guest this evening. Percy Tucker of Compute ticket fame, who is my guest on Fine Music Radio's People of Note this week. Percy, the list of people you've met really is quite extraordinary, and it would take some hours to talk to you about all the people that you've met, but I want to just skip we've been in Bononi now and Richard Tucker and all that, but and then the ticket thing opened. And when did the big time really come where you started meeting these great stars?
1: Well, I started meeting them from 1954. Once I started a show service, Peter and, and Cyril Fisher were the great impresarios of Music Aviva and Hans Adler was the chance of musical society. And they brought out such a variety of wonderful people. We don't even see them here, even here today now. And you don't hear of them even in New York the greats uh, of the pianists and the sopranos. You go to the Met, as I do so often, and you the, the people are all unknown, virtue to you, unless you followed to the, to the nth degree. But in 1956, Fontaine came out for the Johannesburg Festival to mm-hmm. dance Swan Lake. When the booking opened, I had no idea that... There was a form filled in that had a in by post, box 25 Johannesburg you do remember detail don't you and the postmaster rang me up and said when are you going to come and collect the post I said what do you mean he said there's boxes and boxes and boxes here I took in those days sort of a, a van and we just had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of forms and everyone wanted La Scala or uh, Mantovani or um, London Symphony Orchestra. And this, or, this, sorry,
0: just, this is during that festival, festival fifty-six, yeah. the Johannesburg Festival,
1: and it, it just went on and on, and everyone wanted to see Fontaine, but the, her performances at His Majesty's were totally sold out, and because the municipality didn't give any indication of entertainment for the artists, Cyril, um, Peter, and myself took Fontaine out every night, but five years before, in nineteen fifty-one, when I was seen saw her for the first time on this great theater tour that I went with Leonard Schach for three months. Um, I used to stand outside the common garden in the snow and get her autograph and five years later, I was taking her out to dinner. <laughs> but um, she then came and with Swan Lake sold out, I said to Ernest Fleischman, who became so famous at the LA Philharmonic, I said, you know, we should ask her if she'd do another performance. So we agreed that if she'd build a, st- we'd build a stage on Zoo Lake, and all the swans would be running, going around the stage, and we'd have scaffolding for thousands of people. We sold out in, in no time. It was like a rugby excitement oh, that uh, uh, emanated from there. And Fontaine drained between quarter past seven and quarter to eight. Everybody was soaking wet to the auction. <laughs> we had to dry everything, and then sw- uh, um, Fontaine sang. Uh, fant- <laughs> sang. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> interesting. That would have been interesting. Fontaine danced Act 2 with Michael Soames and after the applause was so much I said to Ernest, let's go backstage I have a word, Yiddish, called chutzpah and I said to Fontaine would you dare think of repeating the Act 2 because people are wet through they've been here for hours and she said, only with pleasure and I became great friends with her afterwards she came out here many times in 71 I have parties for her at my flat in Kalani I okay, served her steak at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and um was well, she had a nice person Oh Sounds as though she was I, I down spoke to about Earth her person. after she died. The last thing I gave her was a Krugerand, just to say i mean just in uh, and she had a terrible life afterwards when she retired. Royal ballet ignored her completely, and I've got her autobiographies, many of them, but she was a special lady uh, such such humility and passion and such feeling for the dancers I've never seen almost anybody, and I've seen the whole lot. I've really seen everybody. You know, I took Tomorrow to Manova. All the the baby ballerinas of the Diaghilev: uh, Alicia Markova, Danilova, um, Fontaine. All, no, sorry, not Fontaine. She was much later. Um, there was to Manova was uh, I brought out, uh, but nobody had that. When she exits Act Two and the Swan Lake movement, nobody can compare. Although Beryl Gray tried very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You speak very passionately uh, passionately about ballet. Mm.
0: At the beginning I said of all the things you do love, and it sounds to me as though ballet is a particular love of yours. You've just been to the Sleeping Beauty opening here at Artscape.
1: I am absolutely working so hard six or seven hours a day trying to save the Cape Town City Ballet. We get no financial help from the lottery or for the council or anybody, the corporates. We just it's amazing how I mean Swan Sleepy Beauty last night with these two new stars who one came from the company from Japan and the other one we uh, they lent us from the Joburg City Ballet, the Mizanzi Ballet, uh, the Cuban and it was such a lovely production. I feel so proud when they see them on the stage. This girl had never danced before, and he never danced Sleeping Beauty. And it's, my whole life is now working for the Cape Town City Ballet, plus helping all the other managements, uh, like Hazel. Like Hazel, indeed. <laughs> Talking about ballet, I see you brought us
0: Swan Lake along here. And in mm. fact, from Act 2 we're going to hear a little scene um, with, from, with Tchaikovsky's glorious music to remind you, Percy, of Margot, Margot Fontaine. Fontaine yeah. <laughs> beautiful moment from Swan Lake where you hear what's arguably the main theme of the ballet there. And there you heard the Philadelphia Orchestra conducted by Wolfgang Zawalisch in Tchaikovsky's glorious music. Another choice of my guest on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this evening, Percy Tucker of CompuTicket fame. And Percy um, we were talking about your having had a birthday you know, quite recently you turned 85. But I don't know whether to believe you. There, You tell me that people like Shirley MacLaine and Domingo have sung
1: happy birthday to you in the past. Is this true? Yes. You wouldn't lie to us, would you? <laughs> you know, I'm not a birthday person and when I was 65, I was uh, it was the opening night of Sheryl McLean at Sun City and somebody mentioned to her that I uh, am turning 65 and she came up to the table where they had laid a, a little party for me and there she sang happy birthday and I thought well, that's the ultimate. <laughs> But then when I got to my 70th birthday, Hazel and Sam Feldman said, you come into Paris to watch the three tenors. And it was a football World Cup final the next day. We got to Paris and Hazel had us seats right next to Henry Kissinger and in the the front rows there. And um, after the show, she said, you come into a private dinner for the three tenors. And we were sitting at the table, and Pavarotti sat with his uh, secretary. He was very unhe- unfriendly. Um, but Domingo came up to me, and he said, "I oh, yeah, it's your 70th birthday. And the next thing he started, singing to the table, happy birthday. And I was almost overcome with tears. I'm sure you must sing. <laughs> for somebody like that to actually acknowledge. Uh-uh. was, uh, And then um, I had my 80th birthday with a big shebang in Cape Town. And 85th, very quiet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're waiting for the next one.
0: But it sounds as though you're not very quiet because you no, were just no. saying
1: before the ballet how much work you're doing for I, 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 possibly I keep myself busy because every day I know exactly what I want to do. I don't wake up in the morning and think I've got to wait for tea or wait for lunch or wait for tea. I work at my machine. I do enormous transactions. I get five to six hundred emails a day from every organization and I. Pour them out through all every other organization that need might need it. But what do they what sort of
0: thing do they ask you? No what I sort get, of organizations?
1: Like you get Broadway World every day telling you exactly what's on you know, exactly what's going on day to day in the London Theatre. What is closing, what is opening. People say, What should we see in London? What should we see in New York? And it just goes on and on and I send it to all the managements because they might not no, of these websites that I I work with. Okay, and in in the uh, opening, once again, I mentioned you
0: as a mentor, and now that you're 85 and long, sort of <laughs> retired, um, do you s- do you feel that Computicket and publicity and all that is going well and yeah. continues to go well, well that you started
1: after I left uh, retired? I wasn't happy with the way that things were going. There, employed a very poor choice of uh, MD, as far as I was concerned. They had three or four of them that left very quickly. Each one of them were trying to project themselves. And I'd spent nearly 30 years getting the system, more than 30 years getting the system going. I had a very unique relationship with the managements. I spoke to them five to six times a day. I commended them on the production. and If anything happened on TV or radio, I saw that they knew what their reaction would be. And it was a marvellous friendship with our built-up with all the managements. This seems to have disappeared today. But on the other hand, we had to pay out fortunes for salaries and for rental in shopping centres. And now that Checkers uh, ShopRite have taken over, they've this has just disappeared. They've got all the premises, they've got all the staff. I wouldn't say the staff are the greatest in the world, but I work on the internet and I book my own seats and print my own seats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm back to where I started in the queue. But um no, uh, it's developed that you can buy, I mean, uh, it's Far superior to Ticketmaster or any of the other systems I've seen and worked with overseas. And, you know, you
0: do think, gosh, what would we do without Mm computing, really? But, Percy,
1: the um, other
0: thing I wanted to ask you, earlier on you were talking about those lovely moments in Johannesburg, like His Majesty's Theatre, that beautiful Mm theatre, which is long gone, of course. And the other thing, apparently, that you were instrumental in doing was negotiating the desegregation of audiences because yeah, for so long you would have worked, wouldn't you, where that terrible segregation was. Well, in 1964,
1: in after Leonard Schach and Leon and I produced After the Fall, the after Miller play, um, the Dusty Springfield was the reason why segregation came in the theaters. She came out to South Africa and she said she's not going to play before anybody except multiracial audiences, and the impresario put some Chinese people in the front row and said that's, and then she started baiting, uh, um, I think it was um, Forster, and when Forster debarred her from performing and banned her from South Africa, and I was at the Waldorf Hotel in Johannesburg when you suddenly saw ABC and NBC. I mean, all these television companies you never heard of, and she was telling everybody about the prime minister and the president and everything. And then that the law was decided that they're going to desegregate, they're going to segregate all the theaters. So therefore, after the four became the last. Uh, play done in Johannesburg at the University of Great Hall, and then it came to the Luxorami in Cape Town. Where was refu- King Kong was refused all over the place because they didn't want black performers on their stages in Pretoria and Bloemfontein. But we got together a group. There was Graham English uh, and Michal Krabler, who was the general manager of the Civic Theatre, and myself, and we worked out a, a framework. Of going to Parliament to see if we can persuade them to desegregate not only the audiences but this on the stage. And we got there and Helen Sisman, who was my lecturer at University in Economics, she said, what are you doing here? And I said, we've come to help with the desegregation of theatres. This is 1978, 16 years before the new democracy. She said, you're mad. And she said, Who's, who are you dealing with? I said, Connie Mulder. She said, Connie Mulder, is he going to be responsible? Well, we waited that night, and at 7 o'clock, just before we'd had a leave for Johannesburg, the, the, the notice came through, except there were so many conditions. The toilets, always a problem with the toilets. And eventually, the conditions became irrelevant. We just went ahead and broke every clause of this agreement, And eventually, all the theatres opened, desegregated the audiences and backstage, and the toilets just looked after themselves, that's all.
0: (laughs) When you do think back and talk about it like this, you realise how bizarre and ridiculous it all was, don't you?
1: Well, you know, when we did King Kong in 1959, people used to come up to us and say, please, I'm not racially obsessed, but can you not put me next to a person of colour? And I looked, marked the thing, and, it was, and the next thing, the, the next book that came along, I certainly saw they were put next to a person of color. <laughs> and th- th- That was the first time I realized what an audience would be for the whole of South Africa. Uh-huh. When we saw these tens of thousands of people, I mean, the show was sold out for two years. They went to London, of course, in 1961. I went with them, and if I can just mention one little story. You couldn't get passports for the cast for two years, and eventually by a miracle Leon got the passports he had already auditioned West Indians in London and at the airport as they announced the plane was going to take off you know the old old airport and then the car started singing of course Africa which I never heard before and there was a stillness in the airport which absolutely put goosebumps and they boarded the plane and then the next Two days later, we were performing, and Princess Margaret was greeting the cast.
0: Gosh. Yes, remember the days. I mean, for years, we never, yeah. ever heard in Corsi Seculele Africa, because it was banned. And
1: you, you might have heard it on a shortwave radio mm-hmm. somewhere. Well, in 19, in, when Ipitombi was on, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton arrived for that. Uh, we used to have tennis championships and tennis charities, and they wanted to see Ipitombi. But only I knew it was on because it was the third year and I used to advertise Monday blue nights, Tuesday green nights, Wednesday black, Thursday colored, Friday yellow. <laughs> and they got on. By that time, the police were terribly confused. And they got in and said, you know, it's a it's a, a black night tonight. And um, Elizabeth Taylor said, well, Percy, you just get us in. So we got them in. And they loved the show. And they came afterwards to Annabelle's in the Landross Hotel. Richard Loring was singing, we had a wonderful time with him, and then she decided to have a dinner in aid of Union Artists, and she said, Richard Burton got up and said, if you want to see my wife's jewelries, come up to the table, she's got everything on her, <laughs> and so I took my mother, my sister We rushed to the table, saw all the jewels, but I'd also been at her second wedding with Tamika Wilding in London in 1951, 52. Gosh, that's a that's
0: quite a couple to be able to name yeah. drop, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Now there's a film coming out about them.
1: Yes, I saw the I saw it. Uh, I it's on so. YouTube. Helen uh, oh, right. Helena Bonham
0: Carter. That's right. Mm. Anyway, Percy, let's have some more music. Now we're going yeah. to Stravinsky, this fantastic composer who came to Johannesburg for that festival. And um, two excerpts from Firebird. But tell me a know, bit no, about didn't,
1: him. Sorry, he didn't come to Johannesburg for the festival. He came on his 80th birthday a uh, f- uh, few years before, uh, no, oh, many years after the festival. And it was his 80th birthday. I had seen Firebird with the Paris Opera uh, in, in in Paris with Serge Lee uh, directing. And in fact, last year I saw it in New York. Uh, and we, even we uh, the Cape Town City Ballet did it at Maynardville a few years ago. And he was so old, I mean, I'm 85, he was 80, and he couldn't stand. And these amuensis, Robert Croft, took over from him. But he did conduct the Firebird, and that was an experience. The audience went crazy. I mean, it was full house. We put seats everywhere on the roof. (laughs) This is just two short excerpts, the Firebird and the Firebird
0: variations from the Firebird by Stravinsky. lovely colourful orchestration that Stravinsky created for the Firebird, the Firebird and the Firebird variations there and on that recording you heard the BRT Philharmonic conducted by Alexander Rachbari, and another choice of my guest Percy Tucker on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this evening and uh, all these people you've met Percy, I'm doing a bit of um, I'm just intrigued by these people you've met because of your extraordinary life that you explained so well at the beginning but tell me a little bit about people like Marlena Dietrich
1: Marlena, allegedly lovely La Marlena. I mean, Peter allowed me to come to every performance. Peter Turin. Peter Turin, uh, who, uh, with Basil Rubin, brought her out on the 25th of April, 1965. No. And I can assure our listeners there's no paper in front of Percy. (laughs) And, well, I've got this massive poster of her in my study. um, and we became great friends um, there were a couple of stories we used to go to dinner after the show every night at the Parktown uh, uh, restaurant and one night uh, there were 13 at the table and she said I'm not eating and I said what's wrong madam she said well first of all I need to speak to Noel Card <laughs> <laughs> you're asking me to speak to Noel Card where would I find him and of course I, I remember that he he ate at the Savoy Grill and I be- in those days you couldn't dial easily and I rang up Savoy Grill, and he came on the phone. I couldn't believe it. And I said, Mr. Card, Madam Marlene Dieter would like to speak to you. Oh, she says, I don't need to speak to him anymore. I remember the thing, and I had to apologize to Noel Card. But the, the dinner didn't go on because there were 13, so I had to ring up my manager, Aubrey Lowe, and I said, get dressed in a suit at 1 o'clock in the morning, otherwise madam's not eating. And But... We had some marvelous times together. The flowers that she got and the pictures I've got in my garage of all places, wonderful pictures of her. And um, she, on the last day of her tour, she said, Percy, order champagne for all the old age people in Johannesburg. So I did that, and she said, You must, every morning, an old age person must drink champagne before breakfast. And I'll send you the, she said, send me the count. I sent her the count I sent her the (laughs) account, and I sent her the (laughs) account. As did you marvelous, really do it? marvelous, did you really do it? Huh? Did you really do it? Yes, I did it. I did whatever they asked. I mean, <laughs> but there was one in- nasty incident when the Woods University rag people broke into her dressing room and she was nude, oh, and that right. was disgraceful. She got security. Peter arranged all the security for her, but it was a mesmerizing trip getting to know her, and we carried a correspondent for years afterwards. And was she? She
0: always seemed so larger-than-life with that extraordinary voice and her, her movements and... Well, you know, I went points. to the Marlena
1: Museum in D- in Berlin a couple of years ago and there was the wonderful fur that she used to throw so... sort of immaculately all around the stage, but everything... I used to stand in the wings every night of her performance and like two minutes past nine and twenty seconds the finger would go out. Everything was timed with Germanic precision. <laughs> um, but she it was mentions. lovely to be back and to see her all her life in the museum, and that uh, it, it was it's a special special memory in my life.
0: If you were a special special memory, you mentioned if you were to mention something that was very very special or the most special person you've met or the most special story, would you share it with us? Could you think of something offhand?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, tell, let me let me tell right? you the story of Pavarotti, Possibly not. Uh, he's a very difficult man, uh, too fat. Um, but he did this concert in Cape Town in 1996 at the, in Sellenbosch, and then um, he went to Johannesburg to perform there. And the one night he came off the performance, and he could he was so fat he couldn't get off the stage, so he had a golf cart. Good and good. he went down the ramp of the golf cart, and he was standing at the bottom, but President Mandela and Klerk and all the vic- dignitaries of South Africa and I thought, he's going to actually knock Mandela over. He's going, he lost complete control. And thank goodness, I shouted, The security, security rushed, and they diverted this golf cart within about two inches of Mandela. <laughs> so he actually
0: lost control of the golf yeah, cart? It was, it was, he it, was weights.
1: going down the hill. And then the last <laughs> time he came out here, he couldn't even fit in the plane, so we had to have two seats for him. But Hazel dealt with it and then she d- built the most wonderful set of the union buildings for the three tenors at the bottom of the street and it was a s- 17 you know when you speak about prices when I first started the prices were two and eightpence and four and tenpence and six and three and now the paparotti was 1750 rand I mean when we took Richard Tucker to the game reserve it was 32 rand and the Mount Nelson was 35 rand uh, a, a suite in those days things have changed dramatically
0: Percy, another uh, story you have is of the great Maria Cullis, whom we're about to hear singing. In
1: 1957, I went to the Edinburgh Festival to see Cullis in La Sonambula. And as I got to the station, there was a notice, Cullis walks out of festival. I've got her.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've come a long
1: people. way. And Renata Scotto took over, and that was the beginning of her career. And then three years later, I was in Paris. Uh, I went to, to speak to Elsa Maxwell. I wanted to arrange a big dinner for the Cotton's baby sanctuary. And there in the, the Ritz was sitting, Callas and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and Elsa Maxwell. And I said to Callas, "I know, being young and, and brave, as <laughs> you said earlier, <laughs> I said, I, you walked out of the festival. I came a long way to see you and she said, well, Elsa Maxwell's parties are much more important
0: in the studio here as we listen to that remarkable performance and voice visidarte maria callas there in the recording with georges pretre conducting and carlo borgonzi and tito gobi Um, the choice of my guest, Percy Tucker. Tito Gobi, you've also come across, haven't you? Yes,
1: he came here for a couple of times. In fact, I was at a presentation where they gave him a little lion to take back to Italy, and I thought, what do you do with it? (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: a a real, a live lion.
1: Like when when I went to meet Pavarotti, and I only met Pavarotti because my name was Tucker, and Richard Tucker was his great hero, and they allowed me in, and the Blue bull, the, uh, the Blue Bulls from Pretoria, presenter was just presenting him with a blue bull and I thought, what do you take with that home for? (laughs) And all these stories came the presents that the people give them, what do they do with them? Yes,
0: oh well but Percy, look now, as you know we're going to have to end now, and Mm. I know I can see your packet, I can see your books I can see the piles of CDs here and the massive stuff that uh, that just um, chronicles a remarkable life, Percy, but also just a reminder, I hope you do get your book published again, just a ticket because it's a lovely history
1: of of the the only history. So only history.
0: And just, Percy, you've never wanted to act or sing, have you?
1: No talent. <laughs> oh, no talent. <laughs> but what spectacular talent in other ways to, to sell tickets? I remember every, everywhere, everywhere city. I can actually seat an audience without. Uh, after I worked <laughs> quite happily. You can,
0: in other words, you can From fill memory. a house without yeah. being on the stage. Yeah. Um, It says here you are known as a purveyor purveyor extraordinaire of posterior placements. That
1: was instead of being a retired ticket seller.
0: (laughs) Percy, it's been lovely, but let's end, and perhaps you should come again, because I know we could do another few programs. But just tell me the story of the lovely Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballé, because then play out with that famous
1: Barcelona song. Well, Freddie Mercury came out with Queen in 1984, and we sold Kersler got on the phone to me at 11 o'clock. He said, Why they are they in the paper? I said, It's sold out. He said, What do you mean? 88,000 tickets sold out? I said, Yes. And then on the Sunday night, Hazel rang me up at 11 o'clock in the morning and said, 11 o'clock in the evening, and said, Percy, um, Freddie Mercury's lost his voice. We had to cancel so many performances. We had a refund. It took me weeks and weeks and weeks to write out checks for everybody and a couple of years ago I was in Melbourne somebody came up to me and said I've got a Queen ticket can I still get a refund (laughs) (laughs) and Montserrat Caballier did the most exquisite um, uh, recital in Pretoria and and one day when I took her home her husband wasn't there and she said have you got a box of chocolates so I went and bought her one and she ate the whole lot. Oh, dear. And that's why she was so <laughs> vast. <laughs> it's the
0: vast thing. We're going to end with Freddie Mercury and Montserrat. Percy, Percy, thank you very much for coming through. Thank you very much. Thank you for... And um, keep, the... this, keep going. You're working so hard. And yeah, I love it. It's I good to everything. see you at the opening I'm night. I'm a show
1: business uh, phenomenon. I just love everything about everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't have criticism. Thank you very much to Percy Tucker. Thank you.
3: was me and you,
1: I want all the world to see,
3: a Musical sensation, my guiding inspiration.